You're listening to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. Great show planned for you today. And what a way to kick it off, because this could be the biggest story of the year. China is the world's second biggest economy. Well, it devalued its currency this week. The biggest downward move in decades. A move that has financial markets, central banks, and anyone with really an understanding of economics and finance running a little scared. But not in Canada. No, the media thought Nigel Wright's uneventful testimony in the Mike Duffy trial was more important. Can't resist the lure of a potential gotcha moment. If that sounds critical, it's meant to be. But maybe my frustration with regards to how little attention we pay to economics and finance is misplaced. We have a school system that shows no interest in economics and finance, led by elites in school boards, teachers' unions, education ministries, that have a far greater interest in their social justice agenda. So is it any wonder why we have a population who's disinterested, more importantly ill-informed on subjects, that really can have a far bigger impact on our lives? I mean, my goodness, we've taken a 30% pay cut in the last two years versus American workers because of the decline in the loonie. But the impact is incredibly misunderstood, maybe starting with the impact on gas prices and why they haven't fallen step lockstep with the fall in oil prices. We have record low interest rates, killing people who rely on their savings and pensions who will find it far more difficult to meet their promised payouts. And as you, as a taxpayer, you're on the hook for any shortfall in government pensions. In other words, there's a potential for a big tax increase. Economics and finance force a degree of reality that I think is inconvenient for the political narrative of the power elites, which is why they ignore it. Well, we don't ignore those issues on Money Talks, which I think is the basis of really a ton of the angry emails I receive. Now, I appreciate that saying something like, oh, look at us, we go against the grain, comes off as self-serving. But I'll tell you, the opposition to talking about the implications of unfunded, defined public sector pension plans or pointing out the implications of shutting down the resource industry in terms of employment and government revenues, or simply questioning the anti-business, anti-growth agenda of the very people who demand more government spending. Well, I'll tell you, that opposition is huge, it's organized, and it's determined to shut down any discussion that threatens the status quo. Think about this. This week, not one of our federal leaders mentioned the Chinese devaluation. As I say, despite the fact that it could be the biggest financial story of the year. Well, maybe it's over our heads. But no no one also mentioned the fact that oil fell to new six-year lows this week. And prices of other resources, you could talk about copper, nickel, potash, natural gas, they also have had precipitous drops. This has huge implications for the economy, for employment, government revenues. But you know what? They don't acknowledge it, but it can't be acknowledged because that would force a change in the ongoing spending promises and the government-can-control-the-economy narrative that all three major parties thrive on. I mean, the ongoing deflation in commodity prices is a sea change in the Canadian economy. See, the rise in commodity prices, especially oil, but along with real estate, it hit a myriad of economic sins. Kind of were flush, like we'd won the lottery, so our spending habits weren't under the microscope. It hit the financial mismanagement in Alberta, for example, of Enstelmick and Allison Redford. Transfer payments from Alberta help hide the financial incompetence of the PQ in Quebec. And I'll tell you, the fall in resource revenues may be the final nail in the coffin in the breathtaking financial incompetence of the Ontario Liberals. I mean, the big worry is this, and it's global. 
that buildup is predicated on rising asset prices. But what if deflation takes hold and prices fall? Well, that's what's scaring the heck out of the central bankers. And the Chinese devaluation threatens to export their falling prices to other parts of the world. In fact, that's their goal, reduce the cost of Chinese exports. We could price other countries' goods out of the market. But they're worried about the export of deflation. Because I'll tell you, it's presto job losses in other countries' manufacturing sectors. Further devaluation in response. Huge debt problems for the five trillion borrowed in emerging markets in U.S. denominated bonds. We've been saying on this show since October 2012, you should have at least 30% plus in U.S. dollars. Well, I think that trend's going to tell you there's more to come. I think the loonies going lower, U.S. dollar higher. We're living in a period of historical financial and economic change. But you know what? Sadly, I don't have any clue how to get people's attention. But here's the big thing to understand. It really doesn't matter if you or your spouse or your children, the media, the school system, take an interest in finance and economics. Because no matter what, they're going to take an interest in you. I'll take a break. I'll come back. Top three stories that people are talking about. Now, I asked Michael to overlook the Chinese devaluations. We'll chat more about that coming up with Lance Roberts, STA Wealth Management. Looking forward to that. Victor Dare's got a take on that also. So I said, Michael, give me the other top three stories that maybe the Chinese situation overshadowed. He's going to do that when we come back. Plus, I'll tell you, I saw the most interesting price list I've ever seen in my life, and I'll share that with you before the top of the hour. You're listening to Money Talks on the Chorus Radio Network. Coming up, I've got a quote for you, my quote of the week also, and it's the kind of thing that gets me in trouble, by the way. Also, this incredible black market guide to all sorts of pricing throughout the world of, uh, I mean, it's just mind-blogging. I mean, what do you pay for an AK-47 in different parts of the world on the black market? It's that kind of stuff. I'll share that with you in just a couple of minutes. But right now, I've got Michael Levy on the line with me. Top three stories that smart people are talking about. Michael, as I said, we've put China aside because we're going to come back to that. Give me the number three story. Well, this one would have been, I think, number one story. Number one, two or three this week had China not reared its head, Mike. But to me, it is such an amazing story. Warren Buffett's Berkshire Hathaway and their decision to buy precision cast parts. Now, this is the biggest deal ever for uh, Buffett or, or for Berkshire Hathaway, that's uh, Buffett's company, as they paid U.S. $32 billion, catch the next two words, Mike, in cash for this aerospace manufacturing company. Yeah, it's interesting that that's how he's growing his company. He's going to do it through acquisition. As you say, $32 billion of the cash. I think they got $67 billion on file there, and he said that was too much. You know, mind-blowing numbers. What do you think's behind this, though? What's he making a bet on? Well, he's making a bet on two things. Number one, the continuing boom in the aerospace industry, particularly the manufacturing of airplanes, because this precision cast part supplies parts such as fasteners and turbine blades to aircraft makers, but also, Mike, and I think, again, equally as interesting, uh, they make pipes and other equipment for power stations, uh, power stations and the oil and gas industry. So he is taking a stake, a very, very large stake, in two industries, and what he's telling us 
is the short-term noise may not matter. In the longer term, he is very confident about the oil and gas industry, very confident about the airplane manufacturing industry. And, you know, I, I guess one other salient point, Mike, is he says for the next 12 months, uh, the company will not be making any large acquisitions because they're spending all this money. But that still leaves them with 45 billion dollars in the bank mike 35 yeah. billion dollars in the bank mike no it's incredible i mean how much money they've had and the success they've got interesting that he's also bet on a company and this is something for all of us looking for companies that can be somewhat immune from competitive forces is it you know there's such barriers financially to get in this business to compete with them because of uh, proprietary uh, techniques in the manufacturing area the kind of money it takes whether it's uh, computer parts or other man, uh, machining parts that kind of stuff i thought that was interesting too basically saying hey it's too expensive to get in here to compete with this business ergo we feel a little bit safer for that long-term perspective that you just shared with us so yeah it's always interesting what he does you might want to have a look at there's going to be something uh, valuable in terms of how to approach an investment well what number two mike well number two and this comes from ned davis research i think an absolutely excellent piece and he talks about the oil and oil and the super cycle overhang well what does he mean <laughs> Uh, this is, we're into a bare super cycle in commodities, and it's essentially a black hole. When I read that, that just sent a little shiver up my spine, particularly being a Canadian and looking what's happening in uh, the energy sector. But he says they, it's sucking in most commodity-related matters. Avoiding it is nearly impossible. Fighting it is futile. Each parabolic rise in commodities was met with a thundering crash historically, and guess what? We are coming off that parabolic rise, parabolic rise in commodities. And in fact, as far as Ned Davis is concerned, when you turn and go into the bear market, you're going into a black hole. Well, I mean, we've been chronicling very clearly uh, the kind of movements in oil, and I'd say accurately also from the top down to the uh, bottom in Jan uh, March, rather, it hit us. Uh, the decline accelerated in January, but it hit us in March. We've had a rebound. We correctly predicted it would come and not only hit the, the lows we formed in March, but make new ones. Joseph Schachter on our show last week, you know, talking about oil prices that could be significantly lower from where we are today. I mean, and that happens, by the way, at the end of a move. you get got a lot of people throwing out numbers. I, I think Joseph is saying he thinks that's going to be significant before the bottom. But here's the thing, Mike, and, and I think this is what Ned Davis is saying. You know, you can hit bottom, but that doesn't mean you're having some sort of V. You know, you hit bottom, then springboard right back up. We could be in a longer-term, low-commodity environment because I think, uh, you know, the average lasts, you know, a couple of decades usually when you do this kind of stuff. Mike, absolutely. And this is where Ross Clark and I talked this week. Ross Clark of CIBC Wood Gundy does some wonderful charting and, and took a look at long-term. We're in a trend, Mike, and I think that, Listeners, investors, governments have to realize this is not coming back tomorrow. Next week, next month, next year, we've had the huge move up in commodities. It was multi-year and in case and and multi-decade in some cases. We are just on this huge first wave down. Now, the first wave down is always the most uh, important or, 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 or certainly we, the most violent on the way down yeah. on the way down absolutely you drop the most but if you think that the lows are in 
think, again, we may be in the process of making a low, but in making a low, that doesn't mean you can't go lower and be prepared for this to last a long, long time. And I think that's where Ross's work was so important. You don't change trends overnight. Sometimes they're multi-decade. Yeah, and as I alluded to right off the top, it's interesting how we will not talk about this politically because it's too inconvenient. Regardless of sort of the bias that I read in a lot of the major urban centers, we need our resource industry, not just the phenomenal amounts of unemployment, but uh, or employment rather, excuse me, the, the number of jobs it has created, but it's also the government revenue side, and this is a major shift. Uh, we'll have to keep an eye on it, obviously. Mike, it is, and, and, and I, I couldn't agree with you more, and I think we have to have a change of mindset. I, and this is the, uh, all of us, we, I mean, look at gold has been now, since it turned down in 2010, we're four to five years in the move down in gold after it moved up from 1992 all the way into 2010, 2011. So that was an 18-year move. I think that we have to set our sights in the commodity markets on the fact it might not be 18 years going down, but it's not going to be a short stay at the lower end. Well, we'll keep an eye on it, obviously, on a weekly basis here. Let's go to number one. This is very interesting. David Rosenberg from Gluskin Chef. And the headline was, and this is what made me take note, if you think the equity market is heading for a spot of trouble here, the high-yield bond market is having a coronary. I, I just love that expression. Well, I mean, what he's talking about, and this is the thing that uh, most, you know, looking for prudent sort of financial, personal financial advice, so we have been echoing that along with many others, is where the danger is, is chasing higher yields. You know, as your sort of Canada savings bond rate, your treasury bond rate, your savings rates all went down, people moved into higher risk instruments, you know, the high yield bond market. So he's obviously worried about that. I thought it's interesting, though, the, the implications he thinks that means for the stock market. Well, Mike, he takes a look historically. Uh, the average yield for low-rated companies and what they call junk bonds, but this isn't junk that you sweep up with a dust uh, and throw in the dustbin. This is what is commonly known. The nomenclature is lower-rated lower companies, junk bonds, and the yield, the average yield has jumped to 7.3%, and that's up 1.2% since June. But what we look at is the spread between government treasuries that's government instruments and the junk bond market. And the spread right now is at 580 basis points. In other words, 5.8% between government treasuries and the average junk bond yield. And that's a level hit only twice in the last three years. And what Rosenberg says, if that level sticks and there isn't a correction in the junk bond market, and with people looking for yield, I don't know whether there will be, then the impact is going to hit the stock market. Well, that's what we've got to keep an eye on. I mean, the advice I've been giving people, Mike, for the last uh, couple of months is that they've got to go to their financial advisor. You've got to review the risk inside your portfolio. As you alluded to earlier, if you've had this sort of parabolic rise, that's the most vulnerable, those kind of positions. And I don't think there's ever anything wrong with getting conservative and getting some cash on the books, especially in this kind of an environment. So very interesting to hear Dervin Rosenberg and, and, and his per perspective on that. And, Mike, you know, the other thing he said because we've got to look at everything he says, is markets don't top 
on negative sentiment. Mm-hmm. Usually there's euphoria when a market tops. So he's not worried about the, the stock market crashing from here, but what he is worried is these uh, yields don't narrow, that we're going to have a fairly significant uh, correction in the stock market, maybe as much as 10%, and he says keep your powder dry for that correction. Yeah, I'm glad you finished on that note, Mike. I'll take a break. Uh, Michael, thanks very much for taking the time. Thanks, Mike. I'll come back. I've got a quote that I want to share with you that will not make me popular, but I thought it was one of the most interesting, well, the most interesting quote I saw this week on the issue of minimum wage. But also, I've got this fascinating guide. It's called the Complete Black Market Guide. Just the pricing of certain things throughout the world. As I said, I gave a hint on one of them. What would you pay for an AK-47 in different parts of the world? Not that you're in the market. I just thought it was interesting. I'll share that when we come back. One of my complaints when we talk about issues is that we don't use the full kind of scope of variables. It's The convenient thing is to advocate and then ignore variables. There's so many examples. One of the ones, though, was in the debate over minimum wage. My complaint is that you don't look at all the variables. An advocate of higher minimum wages refuses to look at the impact of several variables, including the underlying strength of the economy, the size of the wage increase, and the length of time that's getting phased in over. What other costs are associated with that? Are we having an increase of payroll taxes, for example, at the same time? So there's a big list, but the big one that I've been really furious about, if we actually care about this issue, you'd look at the impact of technological uh, technological or incentives to create technological substitution. Bill Gates was asked, by the, for example, if he supported a higher minimum wage, he said, "Be better be careful there because the policy would create an incentive for employers, in quotes, to buy machines and automate things. So flash forward to this week, Wendy's chief financial officer, Todd Penagor, talked about the pressure to pay higher wages. He said, in quotes, we continue to look at initiatives and how we work to offset any impacts of future wage inflation through technological incentives, whether that's customer order kiosks, whether that's automating more in the back of the house in the restaurant. And you'll see a lot more of that coming on that front later this year. End of quote. My point is it's got to be part of the discussion. But because it's not convenient, it gets ignored. Who pays for that? Who pays the price are the people who would see their jobs eliminated through technological substitution. I'm saying have your opinion, but don't ignore such a major variable that's so different today or advancing today, intensifying today, the trend in technological substitution. I talked about this black book. I've only got a few seconds here because I get more of it during the course of the show. Haviscope is uh, a company that's done all this research on black market goods. I mentioned the AK-47. Most expensive place to buy one? Australia. It costs $15,493. That's in Sydney. Canada's not any good to buy this stuff. It's expensive too. Just $2,000 for a handgun. You can rent one for $600. Hey, cheapest place? This is a rocket launcher in Iraq. 100 bucks. You can buy a rocket launcher and 50 bucks for the grenade to throw in it. That's the kind of stuff on this. We put the entire catalog on our moneytalks.net site. It is absolutely fascinating reading. I'll share some more of those stats as we go through the show, but that's uh, on the moneytalks.net site. I'm taking a break. I'm coming back. Lance Roberts will chat about all that's happening in the markets.